0: Good morning. Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class for prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your kindness, for your love, for your mercies, for watching over us, for your longing desire to have us back with you. We pray that your spirit will be with us this morning, enlighten our minds, draw us near to you, help us grow in grace and grow in the knowledge of your kingdom, we pray in your holy name, amen. And a few announcements before we get into the lesson, for those who don't follow us on Facebook... We now have a free app available for iPhones and droids. Um, just type in Come and Reason Ministries and then in your search of your app store and you'll find it and this free app allows you accessing to all our materials plus you can stream live with us and when we go live it'll send you a little notification, oh, live broadcast going on right now and you can like just watch it on your, on your either iPhone, iPad or other uh, device, smart device. And then um, we also just want to ask you to remember the R. Worldwide class Because we have a worldwide class You go to our website and look at our friends We have friends all over the world that follow us And some of them have emailed me this week about how they have been running up against some difficulties, have been told that they can't speak or teach in their churches anymore, or that our books or DVDs are banned, or these types of things. And so there's a real kind of opposition in some circles. Other circles, though, we've had other friends telling us that they're getting more invitations to speak, more invitations to share at different churches. So it depends on the locality, how that's going. And then I want to give you an update of last week. I was in uh, Houston, Texas, speaking at the Rethinking Hell Conference, The Legacy of Edward Fudge and the Future of Conditionalism. Conditionalism means conditional immortality, that we're not actually all immortal. Uh, immortality for the righteous. That's what conditionalism means. Anyway, there were people from all over the world, Australia, New Zealand, uh, France, England, Lithuania, and multiple places in the States, a variety of evangelical uh, religious groups. I don't know all of them that were represented, but I do know there were Anglican, Baptist, Church of Christ, and others, um, mostly thought leaders like theologians and priests and pastors and so forth. And um, it was an incredibly positive response. I've already got an email asking if I'd be willing to present again at future um, uh, events. And I was the only one that presented our view on consuming fire, and it was very well received. Edward Fudge, he was raised by a Church of Christ pastor. His father was a pastor. He went to Church of Christ Theological Seminary School. He was a pastor himself for a while. And in about 30 years ago or so, an individual named Robert Brinsmead, anybody heard of Robert Brinsmead, actually contacted him and hired him and paid him to research the question of hell. Is it eternal burning hell, as often taught, or is it uh, annihilation, as some teach, and and what's the biblical Old Testament, New Testament teaching on this? And he spent several years doing a real academic research job of this question, and he came from the bias himself of uh, eternal burning hell, that's he was raised, and that's what he believed going into the research, and what he ultimately came to after his research was that, in fact, the Bible teaches annihilation, not eternal burning hell, and he published his book uh, 30 years ago, The Fire That Consumes, and when he came out with it, his own church fired him from his job, he began to be verbally uh, misrepresented, they misrepresented him in their church papers, uh, across Anglican, excuse me, not Anglican, um, evangelical Christianity, he met with lots of opposition, there were actually groups rising up to oppose the false theology of Edward Fudge. and Does this sound familiar to anybody at all? Let <laughs> me tell you. Anyway, but he's pers- persisted, and the truth has persisted, and it's making its way through evangelical Christianity. And now there are evangelicals in all denominations that actually view hell as eternal annihilation rather than eternal torment. And this question is still... And, and what, what I found fascinating at the conference... Was that the central point? And I listened to lectures from a whole lot of different, uh, uh, individuals from different backgrounds. But do you know the one thing that they all, all of them kept coming back to? The character of God they kept coming back to this question that if you teach an eternal burning hell, it makes God into a sadistic monster. It says awful things about God and that you can't have a God of love who would torture his people forever. They all kept coming back to the character of God question. And there was a real unity uh, amongst the the different denominational folks there on this question and the need to have a God who's consistently represented as Jesus represents him to be. And I found that fascinating Particularly since, supposedly, this church was raised up to do this very message. And since we've gotten sidetracked as an organization, I see the stones. As Jesus said, the stones will rise up, you know. And so this message is actually coming up. It's coming up around the world in lots of circles now. So watch for it. I received this email this week. I received the cases of books and have been giving them away to friends. I can't begin to express how much this message has helped me. There's one word that keeps coming to mind when I think of it. Liberation, And then my mind goes to Jesus' mission statement as stated in Isaiah 61, 1, 2, 3. And that's where he says, set the captives free and so forth. I've been reading uh, the book Education for Devotion. It eloquently illustrates that the message being presented by common reason. It uh, illustrates the message being presented by common reason. Here's a quote from that, from that book that I'm sure you've read before, but I just had to share it. It's basically a summary of this message. It talks about how men came to have false conceptions of God, his character, and the nature of his law, why Jesus came and how the principles of his kingdom were to be established through the integrative evidence-based approach that we, of course, promote in here. This made my morning. Hope it brightens yours as well. And I thought it was so profound, I do want to share this quotation. For those who would like to look it up, it begins on Education, page 75, and it's several paragraphs that follow. Here's what it says. As the evil passions and purposes of men banished God from their thoughts, so forgetfulness of him inclined them more strongly to evil. So you notice what it's saying. As we forget God, we get more evil. The heart and love with sin clothed him with its own attributes, and this conception strengthened the power of sin. So what it's saying there is when we conceive of God being like ourselves, then sin gets stronger. Bent on self-pleasing, men came to regard God as one at- as such a one as themselves, a being whose aim was self glory, whose requirements were suited to his own pleasure, a being by whom men were lifted up or cast down according as they helped or hindered his selfish purpose. The lower classes regarded this re- supreme being as one scarcely differing from their oppressors, save by exceeding them in power. So basically, we've got a dictator like Nero, but much stronger. <laughs> By these ideas, every form of religion was molded. Each was a system of exaction. By gifts and ceremonies, the worshippers sought to propitiate the deity in order to secure his favor for their own ends. You understand that in Christianity today and in our own church, it's taught that God needed to be propitiated by the blood of his son. Such religion, having no power upon the heart or the conscience, could be but a round of forms of which men wearied, and from which, except for such gain as it might offer, they longed to be free. So evil unrestrained grew stronger, while the appreciation and desire for good diminished. Men lost the image of God and received the impress of the demoniacal powers by which they were controlled you hear what that's saying? When we worship a God who's got Satan's character, we receive that imprint and we begin to practice those things. We're going to come more to that in the lesson today. <clears throat> the whole world was becoming a sink of corruption. There was but one hope for the human race, that into this mass of discordant and corrupting elements might be cast a new leaven. Now I'm going to pause right there. Yes, it's a profound word chosen. The word leaven. Anybody know what leaven means? Mm-hmm like yeast, right? And think about yeast. What is it? Th- how does it work?
1: It permeates.
0: It permeates, and it works internally to bring about a change, internal to the substance itself. So we keep reading: the cast a new leaven, that there might be brought to mankind the power of a new life. And by the way, it's a cast a new leaven semicolon that there might be brought the power to uh, brought to mankind the power of a new life semicolon. And here's the the summation of this leaven, this power of a new life, that the knowledge of God might be restored in the world. So what is this leaven, this power, this transformational? The truth about God. Christ came to restore this knowledge. He came to set aside the false teachings by which those who claimed to know God had misrepresented him. And who were those who were claiming to know God and was doing the misrepresentation?
1: Church leaders.
0: Church leadership in christ 's day, and this was god 's church it wasn't some apostate church or false system of baal worship uh, uh, or you know coming out of uh, overt baal worship. it was god's ordained church at the day was still misrepresenting him. He came to manifest the nature of his law to reveal in his own character the beauty of holiness. Christ came to the world with the accumulated love of eternity, sweeping away the exactions which had encumbered the law of God. He showed that the law is a law of love. An expression of the divine goodness. He showed that in obedience to it and its principles is involved the happiness of mankind. With it, the stability, the very foundation, framework of human society. I want to pause. Why? Why is the happiness of mankind um, tied to this law and these principles? Pardon? That's how we're made. He said, that's how we're made. Do you understand? Happiness is an outgrowth, a byproduct of healthiness. <clears throat> When you're physically sick and unwell, are you happy? When you're, when you're relationally sick and unwell, you've got conflict in your marriage, you've got conflict with your kids, are you happy? When you're psychologically sick, you've got things in your head, I'm no good, everybody hates me, I can't do anything right, I, I'm horrible, I'm worthless, I'm no Are you happy? When you've got psychological sickness. When you've got spiritual sickness, I'm under condemnation of God. God will punish me, he's going to torture me. When are you happy? You see, happiness is a byproduct of living in harmony with God's design. And when you understand God's designs and his laws are the designs upon which life is made, then you understand you can't have happiness outside the laws upon which life is is constructed to operate. Living in harmony with it brings healing, brings life, it revives the soul, and thus it brings happiness. It's not an arbitrary statement. Oh, if we do the right rules, then God uses power and gives us a little dose of pixie dust and boom, we're happy. It's not how it works. The happiness, okay, so far from making arbitrary requirements, the very next word, so far from making arbitrary requirements, what are arbitrary requirements? Rules without inherent consequence. Design protocols are not arbitrary. They're the way things are designed to work. So far from making arbitrary requirements, God's law is given to men as a hedge, a, hedge, a shield. Whoever accepts, accepts its principles is preserved from evil. Fidelity to God involves fidelity to man. Thus the law guards the rights of, the individuality of every human being. Now get this next sentence. It restrains the superior from oppression and the subordinate from disobedience. Notice the emphasis here. The law of love, you notice how it's written. It restrains the superior from oppression and the subordinate from disobedience because the law of love written in the heart is the restraining power in the life of the one where it's written. It's not an external force that we have some guards that restrain the, the uh, robber from stealing from the bank. No. It's internal. So the person who has a law of love will not oppress. The person who has a law of love will not be disobedient, will not be uh, insubordinate. It ensures man's well-being both in this world and the world to come. To the obedient, it is the pledge of eternal life, for it expresses the principles that endure forever. See, this is how life is designed. Christ came to demonstrate the value of the divine principles by revealing their power for the regeneration of humanity. I'm going to read that again. Listen to what it says. Christ came to demonstrate the value of the divine principles by revealing their power for the regeneration of humanity. Wait one second now. This has to be heresy because we are told that the power for regenerating us is the blood. And you must have the blood applied to your account as your legal payment. That's how it happens. There is no power in divine principles. There's power in blood. We even have a song. There's power in the blood. Notice what it says here. Christ came to demonstrate the value of the divine principles by revealing their power for the regeneration of human of humanity. He came to teach how these principles are to be developed and applied. Interesting. With the people, this is the last uh, last paragraph. With the people of that age, the value of all things was determined by outward show. As religion had declined in power, it had increased in pomp. The educators of the time sought to command respect by display and ostentation. To all this, the life of Jesus presented a marked contrast. His life demonstrated the worthlessness of those things that men regarded as life's great essentials. Born amidst surroundings, the rudest the surroundings, the rudest, sharing a peasant's home, a peasant's fare, a craftsman's occupation, living a life of obscurity, identifying himself with the world's unknown toilers. Amidst these conditions and surroundings, Jesus followed the divine plan of education. The schools of his time, with their magnifying of things small and their belittling of things great, he did not seek. His education was gained directly from the heaven-appointed sources, from useful work, from the study of scriptures, and of nature and from the experiences of life. God's lesson books. That's a quote. The integrative, evidence-based approach. Full of instruction to all who bring them the willing hand, the seeing eye, and the understanding heart. Isn't that profound? Don't you love this quote? Yes, I thought it was great. This is the perspective on God and his law that we want to take to the world. Notice this perspective here is not a dictator makes rules and if you disobey them by the power of his office and his, and his might that he will then enforce externally punishments upon you. And that's not what this is about at all. That God has designed life to operate in harmony with his own nature. And in operating in harmony with that, like the laws of health, this is where we find peace, harmony, healing, restoration. And it's learning of him that we come back into unity with him that we begin practicing those principles which begin regenerating in us christ-like character let's go to lesson five how to be saved first question what does it mean to be saved
1: to be healed uh the root meaning would be salve or s- salvation
0: wonderful that's exactly what i think it means as well if you go to evangelical christianity and say are you saved what or what does it mean to be saved what do they what would they possibly say what is a common answer
1: have you accepted jesus
0: have you accepted jesus any others? Have you accepted
1: Jesus' payment? Ah.
0: Have you accepted the blood payment? Have you had your sins paid? These types of things is what they think it means. Being saved from the punishment of sin is what's often taught in, in, in nominal Christianity that being saved, it means we're saved from the punishment. But that's not what God wants to save us from. He wants to save us from sinfulness itself. The actual condition of being deviant from His design. So it does mean healed or restored or renewed or recreated. It means, to be, it means taking something that's defective and restoring it back to God's original design, to rebuild it, to regenerate it. And that in every aspect, God's plan for each of us is complete restoration and regeneration, physical, mental, moral, spiritual, relational, intellectual, restoration to complete perfection when his plan is realized if you were bitten by a rattlesnake and went to the emergency room and said to the doctor doctor please save me I want to be saved I forgive you for stepping where you shouldn't have stepped and gotten bitten is that what you want in the ER do you know how much of Christianity presents salvation as getting God's forgiveness it's not it's about saving it's about healing and, and, and when you've been bitten by the rattlesnake you have poison running to you you're out of harmony with how life is designed you want the doctor to do something to put you back in harmony with the laws of health where you can live Salvation, the root word for for salvation, as you were alluding to, sav or salvo. We get words like salvage or isav. It means to to take something broken and salvage it, restore it, or isav a, a, a medicinal. And every metaphor of Scripture points to this reality. Some of the critics of this class, you may remember, they came and spoke here once with a paper that they brought, and one of their criticisms was that the Bible has many metaphors of the atonement. And that we, in this class, only focus on one. Therefore, since they focus on the broad landscape of metaphor, including legal metaphor and others, that their view is actually more broad and more biblically wholesome than our view. What they fail to realize is that behind metaphor is reality. And without the reality, the metaphor itself has no meaning. Get your mind around what I just said. Without the reality, metaphor has no meaning. Okay? And the reality of God's plan is healing, restoration. It is not metaphor. And if you ever come up against somebody who takes that position with you and tries to confuse you with the suggestion that that's one, yes, that's one metaphor, but the Bible has many metaphors. We need to take all those into account. You stop and ask them a question. Ask them if they believe that the Bible speaks of a new heaven and a new earth, and if, speaking about that, is that metaphor or is that real? And they'll say real. They absolutely will say real. Mm -hmm. Then ask them, what words do you use to describe the process of taking something that's defective, diseased, and broken, like our earth, our world, and and, and, and making it new, restoring it to perfection? What words do you use for that? Healing. Restoration. Rebuilding. Recreating. It's not metaphor, folks, it's real. That's the real plan. Sabbath lesson memory text, John three, fourteen and fifteen, it says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What does it mean to believe? Whoever believes in him. Trust. Trust? Yeah. So that's what I'm Trust. I
1: agree. Okay. Acceptance of the claim.
0: Acceptance of the claim.
1: Not my
0: See, you guys have probably watched our red DVD out there, and I say in this, we have power over what we believe, but what we believe holds power over us—power to heal or power to destroy. You can choose your beliefs, but your beliefs will then affect and change you. What does it mean to believe? We are changed. We are actually changed, literally, neurobiologically, brain structurally, characterologically, based on our our beliefs.
1: And what does it mean when it says even the devils believe and tremble?
0: Are you looking at my notes?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask that question first. Let me ask this question first, and we'll come to that one. What what changed Adam and Eve in the garden? Was it taking the fruit? Or believing a lie which resulted in taking the fruit. It was the belief that came first. They believed the lie that God wasn't trustworthy and that belief changed them into self-centeredness and then took the action of selfishness. See, So many times in Christianity, it's behavioral focus, it's the action. No, no, no. Jesus said, you say if you commit adultery, bad act. I say if you look at woman with lust in your heart. The actions are stemming from what's in the heart. So, what difference then to the question is there in believing in Christ as our Savior and believing what the demons said when they confronted Christ, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. Did they believe?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Hmm. So what's the difference in their belief and our belief? So notice, they believed who Jesus was, but did they believe in him? They believed in Jesus To believe in Jesus is not merely to believe he exists or to believe he has power. The devils believe he exists and they believe he has power. But to actually believe in him is to believe in his trustworthiness in every way and thereby surrender yourself and trust to him and intelligently appreciate his designs and methods. The devils believe in his existence and his power, but not in his goodness. They don't believe he's good. And this is the thing that, frankly, many Christians also doubt about God. Many Christians believe in God's existence and believe in his power, but they doubt his goodness. Russell.
1: Didn't the demons at one time it's, it say to him, have you come to torment us before our time?
0: Exactly. They had a belief that Christ was going to torment them. Exactly right. How many Christians have that same belief? That's exactly right. That, that, how many Christians have that demonic view of God and Christ? That Christ and God are the ones who come to torment and torture. This is what that whole conference was about last week. And, and Within evangelical Christianity, it's rising up and the message is getting out that, in fact, God is not the source of torture and suffering. It's unremedied sin. And I said last week, and they actually found this quite profound, that more Christians are afraid of God, who is trying to save them, than sin, which is destroying them. Do you realize that? So many people believe in a God and believe in his existence and his power, but that he's not good. Just as we read in the book Education earlier here, thus, if you believe that way, you really don't believe in God. This is why the Jewish nation was often called an unbelieving nation or a faithless people, not because they were agnostics and atheists, but because they didn't believe in the goodness of God. They saw God as a being who was like Satan in character. They believed in his existence. They believed in his power. And they also believed he had to be appeased, and this was Baal worship. Do you see this happening in Christianity today? Why do you think that Malachi prophesied before the day of the Lord the great and dreadful day of the Lord that the prophet Elijah must come again and turn the hearts of the people back. Why? Because we're believing in a God who is powerful but we don't believe in his goodness. And this is why, in my view, that Christianity in generally is powerless to change lives and prepare people for Christ's return. There's no power in a false God concept. We read earlier the power is in the knowledge of God. This is the leaven which transforms. And we have an imposed law, a dictator God concept. There's no power for transformation. It only damages. Thus, in every denominational church, including our own, the rates of pornography, spouse abuse, child abuse, is no different than the world at large. No different. How can this be? Because there's no power. We have a form of godliness Paul wrote to Timothy but we deny its power because we deny the actual truth about God and accept this distortion and we call it justice second paragraph the Lord wanted to teach them a spiritual lesson he transformed a symbol of death into the symbol of life the bronze serpent was a symbol of Christ who became the bearer of our sins in order to save us By faith, we can all look to Christ lifted up on the cross and find a cure from the deadly sting of the old serpent, Satan. Otherwise, we are fated to die in our sins. The word of God expresses what should be painfully obvious. As human beings, we are sinners in need of grace. That grace has been offered in Christ Jesus. I I want to say I like the way they they phrased this sentence. We can uh, look to Christ lifted up on the cross and find cure from the deadly sting of the old serpent. I like that sentence very much. I think that's right. But the sentence before left opportunity for misunderstanding, and I wanted to explore that sentence. What do you think it means that Christ came to be the bearer of our sins?
1: You know, I think all of this, Tim, is so much confused and focused on behaviors and always sins with plural. When you're talking about sins as plural, you're talking about behaviors. But it's almost always focused on that. It's always represented as sins that need to
0: be cared. Did, did everybody hear that? No. Yeah, th- this misconstruing of sins makes it about deeds and acts. It's almost always right? Almost always this way. How did Christ bear our sin, or if you want to use the plural, sins? How did he... Let's, let's look at the positive side first, then we'll come back to the negative side. How did he actually bear our sin? I'm going to read to you a commentary out of a book called Desire of Ages. first paragraph is out of page 89. Second paragraph is out of page 700. Same book. See if you ever thought about Christ bearing our sin this way. Jesus did not contend for his rights. Often he worked, his work was made unnecessarily severe because he was willing and uncomplaining. Yet he did not fail or become discouraged. He lived above these difficulties as if in the light of God's countenance. He did not retaliate when roughly used, but bore insult patiently. Maybe that's a little vague. Ah, okay, I'm stretching it here. Let's look at page 700. The angels of heaven witnessed every moment made against their loved commander. They longed to deliver Christ. Under God, the angels are all-powerful. On one occasion, in obedience to the command of Christ, they slew the Assyrian army. In one night, 185,000 men. How easily could, could the angels, beholding the shameful scene of the trial of Christ, have testified their indignation by consuming the adversaries of God, but they were not commanded to do this. He who could have doomed his enemies to death bore with their cruelty. His love for his father and his pledge made from the foundation of the world to become the sin bearer led him to endure uncomplainingly the coarse treatment of those he came to save. It was part of his mission to bear in his humanity all the taunts and abuse that men could heap upon him. The only hope of humanity was in this submission of Christ to all that he could endure from the hands and hearts of men. Have you considered that his bearing sin was not deeds placed on him by his daddy and his daddy punishing him, but actually bearing up with the ugliness that we did to him? He bore our sin and our sins. Is that kind of like a whole paradigm shift?
1: And then uh, Jesus said, you know, how long will I have to bear with you? <laughs> At one point, I remember him saying, you know, they, they just wouldn't get it. They they totally were going off on wrong tracks. <laughs> how long must I bear with you? So there's another evidence that his, part of his job was bearing, despite the way he might as a person feel, uh, the temptation to... Get even, he had to struggle with that, I'm thinking. As a human, he had to bear with the sins, um, uh, even if it was on and on and on and on and on.
0: And why was this necessary? Why did he need to bear this? See, I, I, We are so trained to think in legal p- paradigms. I'm a sinner, I've committed sins, I'm guilty, I've got all this punishment that's due me, I need to get this off of me some way. Oh, thank you, Jesus. My sins now can be put over here, they're on him, they've been punished in him, I can't be punished anymore. Oh, man, I've got those off me now. You know how much we're trained to think this way. It's a real shift to think, wait a second, hold on. Jesus bearing sin was he was bearing with the abuse and the torment and the taunts and the, uh, and the misuse and the selfishness and the beating and the crucifixion that we gave upon him. Our sin he was bearing as we sinfully and selfishly abused him. Why did he need to bear it this way? Ken.
1: I'm thinking that uh, it has a lot to do with overcoming what humanity is so prone to, which is presumption. We presume that we can figure things out, do things our way, and somehow we're going to start by.
0: Put it in the context. Okay, go ahead.
1: Yeah, show shows the difference. Difference of? How God acts. Uh, oh, I love this. It, I uh,
0: yes, put it in the context of the great controversy. Mm-hmm. According to 2 Corinthians 10, what are we warring against?
1: The idea of who God is. is.
0: And everything that sets itself up against? the knowledge of god God. that's central it's the knowledge of god and so we see in jesus christ one of the allegations satan never alleged and therefore never deceived anyone that god was powerless no beings left heaven thinking well god has no power he's completely a wimp they never left heaven thinking this no i don't know any being thinks that god is powerless What he alleged was he is untrustworthy and abusive and dictatorial and dominating and self-centered in his use of power. What do we learn in Christ bearing our sin this way? Have you ever heard that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely? What do we learn in Jesus Christ? It says in John 13 that all power had been given him. All power had been given him. And what did he do? He got up, wrapped a towel around his waist, and washed some dirty feet. And he healed, and he restored, and he forgave. And then here, he still has all power at his disposal. What do we learn? Was he corrupted by power? This is prima facie evidence that Satan lied. God would rather let his creatures kill him than use his power to stop them. Get your mind around that. Can he be trusted with the power? Mm-hmm. Yes, this is. He bore our sin in an ugly, horrible way. But that's not the only way. Isaiah fifty three four says, "Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He car- carried." Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And notice how the New Testament writers, in case somebody wants to take umbrage, well, who are you to interpret the Bible this way? I'll let Matthew do it for us. Here's Matthew's interpretation in Matthew eight sixteen and seventeen. And when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. What does it mean? That God punished him in our place? No that he came to heal, cleanse, and restore us back to righteousness. Take the defects that sin has done to us. Free the mind of the demoniac. Who, the person whose mind is corrupted with Satan's ideas about God, that mind is freed with the truth about Christ. The person whose body is corrupted with sin and sickness, he's going to heal and restore. This is how he is taking our sin and taking it away, removing it from us. Yet, the, the Isaiah prophecy said, we would misunderstand and consider that he was stricken by his father, smitten by him. And have we? Terrible. Yet, there's another aspect of bearing our sins as well. Isaiah 53.5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastise, chas, chastising of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And then how does First Peter apply this? First Peter 2.24-25. I'm going to read it the way it's translated in every English translation that I've checked. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you are healed. Notice how Peter applies it. He bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might... What's oh, the purpose? Notice it. He bore our sins in our body so that he could expiate the Father's wrath on sin. So he could propitiate the Father's anger. So he could pay the legal... No! so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you are healed. Not metaphor, guys. It's literal. It's real. And the Greek here, in the first phrase, notice, notice the sentence here. He bore our sins, in the English translation, in his body, so that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. Singular in the second phrase. Same exact Greek in both places. So it absolutely can be read. He bore our sin in his body that we might die to sin. He bore our sinfulness. He took our sinful condition, the corruption which Adam put on humanity. He took up and he cured and he overcame in our behalf. That's why by his scour- scourging we are healed.
1: It's sort of the way that antivenom is made. Yeah. You know, a person bears the, uh, a, a, an animal, say, bears the venom. And the reaction of its body creates anti that then other people can use to keep from dying from the same venomous bite.
0: Metaphorically, yes, yes. (laughs) How can the idea of Christ, though, bearing our sin be misconstrued to teach false ideas? I've got three bullets here. Every behavior, misdeed, act of sin pla- is placed upon Christ and he experiences the pain and guilt of each and every act of sin that's ever been committed, past, present, or future. Every behavior, misdeed, act uh, of sin is legally credited to his account and he is punished by the Father for every act of sin, past, present, or future. And thus, God killed Jesus on the cross as an act of divine justice. Do you understand what I just read there? Did it sound beautiful to you all? <laughs> This is actually in official literature of our church, what I just read, that God killed Christ on the cross. What literature? It's in Review and Herald. It's in um, 27 Fundamental Beliefs. It's in um, Ministry Magazine. Uh, And if you want those quotes directly, the red DVD set, second lecture, uh, I quote them and give you the references in the second DVD set. Sunday's lesson. The lesson rightly points out that the first step to experience salvation is recognizing our need. Recognizing our need. What is our actual need and how has the devil replaced our actual need with a false need that most people think they need? What's our actual need? New hearts and right spirits, right? That's what we need. New hearts and right spirits. The law of God exposes our true condition. It diagnoses us as being a terminal and as being out of harmony. And thus, we need a remedy, a cure, a restoration, a new heart, right spirit, reborn, recreation in inner man, law written on the heart and mind. All those metaphors, circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit, are actually transformational of the believer in turn. That's what we need. But there's a false need that many Christians believe is what they really need. And they seek it. What's the false need? legal pardon, legal forgiveness, legal payment, something legally done. Satan has duped many to think that we need a legal solution, that our problem is a legal one. We've broken the rules, we're in legal trouble, and thus we have to have a penalty paid. We have to have the wrath of God appeased. We have the records erased. We have to have something done to hide us and our record from the Father so he can't see it. And and, and when you come back to reality, think about going to a doctor. I love this. You know, how many times have you heard the metaphor that when we're covered with the robes of Christ's righteousness, when the Father sees us, he can't see our sin. He only sees the beautiful righteousness of Christ. So imagine going to the emergency room because you're terribly, terribly sick and you know that the life-threatening condition is ongoing. And when the doctor comes in to examine you, you shove your healthy brother in front of you and say, please examine him and whatever you find, put it in my record. Does that help you at all? Do you understand what Christianity in large is teaching? That when when he comes to examine us, he examines Jesus and what he finds there, he puts in our record. But David prayed, Father, search me and see the wicked way in me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. See, when you actually know the doctor is on your side, he loves you, he would die for you, and he has a remedy that will cure you, do you need to be hidden from him? Find what's wrong, doc. Fix it. Please fix it. Yes. It only
1: helps if your healthy brothers put in if the problem is with the God who is executing judgment against some.
0: That's right. And so when we have the legal problem, see, that, that solution works, okay? Uh, the problem is God. See, we, we're not actually defective. We're not, it's not our problem. The problem is God's angry and mad. And so if we can get him to look at Jesus and find no fault with Jesus and put that on a record, then he'll be happy with us, you see? You're exactly right.
1: Would you say that the justification for that, that kind of thinking or that kind of theology would be that text that says every man is a liar? I've heard that quoted from so many of my Baptist friends, and I just wonder if that's
0: where you can see it deriving. Follow what I'm saying? Not really. There's a text that I know. It says I know the text. Every man is a liar, but how is it connecting to to this? Other than that, that's a false idea, and, and certainly supports the idea that this isn't true. Uh, but the text is actually Romans chapter three verse four, and it's I think um, though everyone be proved false, God may you win your case when you take it into court, something like that. I think that's it. But we see the same distortion in last week's lesson. If you have your quarterly, you can look to Thursday's lesson last week. And the first paragraph says the following: Listen to this out of the quarterly. It says, because of our sins, we deserve to die but Christ took our place on the cross and paid the death penalty that otherwise rested on us. He, being innocent, took our guilt and received our punishment so that we, being sinful, could be declared innocent. This is false in so many layers, I can't even almost go through it, but I'm going to try. First, it misdiagnoses the problem as a legal problem rather than the condition that we are in, rather than a state of being, and being out of harmony with God and His design, It, it makes it a legal condition. It makes our behavior and our shortcomings the problem rather than the condition with which we were born and had no choice in. We're born in sin, conceived in iniquity. When did you choose that? An HIV-infected man and woman get together and have a baby born HIV-infected. What did the baby do wrong? Nothing. But does it have a condition which if not remedied will still Result in its death. This is how we're born. We're born deviant. And we'll get hopefully to the rebirth. Of course, that's next week, I think. The rebirth is next week. We'll talk about Nicodemus and and being reborn next week. But it makes Christ's mission one of paying legal penalties to God. It represents God as a source of inflicted pain and death. It suggests also that God lies by declaring us innocent, those who are not innocent. When in universal history will it be true that Adam and Eve were innocent? When? okay okay when in universal history moving looking back from what they did with the historical record they had when will it ever be true that they did not bleed lives and rebel never how can then god claim them and proclaim them innocent they're not innocent innocence means no wrong done they did wrong. What God declares us is never innocent. He declares us righteous, healed, restored, holy, renewed, recreated. This is what he declares us well. Give you some examples from the Bible. Job was not, in the heavenly judgment scene that was in heaven, declared innocent. He was declared righteous. He's perfect and righteous in all his ways. He's declared restored. Uh, David didn't get a new history and a new set of records, he got a new heart and a right spirit. Paul himself declared that he was the chief of sinners, but he was not innocent, yet he was saved because Paul was healed, reborn, renewed, had circumcised his heart by the spirit. This is what the Bible teaches, we will always stand with a history that was deviant from God's design, but we have been restored to righteousness, which gives powerful testimony. How does it get powerful testimony? The power of God's grace, the power of God's healing, the power of God's methods. As a cancer patient with cancer who takes a remedy and is now cancer free becomes a powerful uh, a witness to the one who provided the remedy. They don't get any credit. We get no credit. The cancer patient can't stand up and say how great they are. They can only proclaim what someone else did for them. And they stand as evidence to that, but they don't get the credit. That's us. We don't get credit, we get privilege. Privilege of being healed and privilege of sharing what the Lord has done for us. Linda.
1: Well, in John, we're all like this man. As he went along, that would be Jesus, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life.
0: Exactly, And we see this battle going on between good and evil, and God's work is working to restore Christ's likeness and transformation, and we get that privilege of witnessing. What's so offensive about the penal substitutionary thinking, to me anyway, is that it obstructs people from actually experiencing victory in Christ. It is a false theology based on Satan's view of an imposed law, and that God must be the punisher of sin. People who believe this lie then seek to appease God, get sins paid, get record books erased, cover themselves with the robes of the blood or something else to hide them from God so he won't see their sinfulness. They long to be declared innocent and they languish in a false security of eternal life while living in fear and selfishness with no real victory over sin in their lives. This is what Christianity is today. It's a corrupt system of legal payments, false security, where we beat our families and molest our kids. No difference in the world. The power is in the knowledge of God, coming back to that true knowledge. Oswald Chambers understood this. Oswald Chambers wrote in his book, My Utmost for His Highest, the Bible does not, say that, does not say that God punished the human race for one man's sin, but that the nature of sin, namely my claim to my right to myself, self-centeredness, me, 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 entered the human race through one man. But it also says that another man, capital M, took upon himself the sin of the human race and put it away an infinitely more profound revelation. Sin is something I am born with and cannot touch. Only God touches sin through redemption. It is through the cross of Christ that God redeemed the entire human race from the possibility of damnation through the heredity of sin. God nowhere holds a person responsible for having the heredity of sin and does not condemn anyone because of it condemnation comes when i realize that jesus christ came to deliver me from this heredity of sin and yet i refuse to let him do so from that moment i begin to get the seal of damnation this is the condemnation and the critical moment that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light notice the critical moment is when you've seen the light and you prefer the darkness that's the critical moment Not the moment you were born with this condition of sinfulness. So the HIV example I gave you, that baby born HIV positive, did nothing wrong and is not held accountable for that. But now as the child becomes old enough to be aware and make its own decisions, and there's a free remedy that will cure them, and it's offered to them at no charge, free, take this, be well, and they reject it. That is accountable to them. That's what Oswald is saying. We're accountable for rejecting the light and rejecting what Christ will and can do in us, not for the condition with which we're born. Questions? Yeah.
1: So, when Adam and Eve believed the lie about God that He was selfish and withholding something from them, that's when they became selfish themselves because they—that's how they viewed God. And so,
0: yes, lies believed. Yeah. Break the circle of love and trust, wow. guys. What what comes next? Broken love and trust results in.
1: Fear and
0: selfishness. selfishness. You believe your spouse is cheating, but they're not, but you believe they are. Not only is love and trust broken, something changes in you, but now you're afraid that they're going to take advantage, they're going to exploit you, so you have to watch out for yourself, so you've got to get to the bank before they do. These type of things. Lies, believe, break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. Fear and selfishness result in acts of sin. And this is a terminal condition. It's corrupt. Monday's lesson... First paragraph. It says, Recognizing our sins is not enough. It must be accompanied by repentance. The biblical meaning of repentance includes three aspects acknowledging one's own sin, sorrow for having sinned, and the desire not to sin anymore. If one is lacking, there is no true repentance. For example, Judas admitted his sin, but he lacked grief for having betrayed his master. He was overwhelmed with remorse, not with repentance. His confession was generated by fear of the consequences, not by love of Christ. What's the problem with this if we focus on sins and behavior? What's the problem? True true repentance is not merely taking responsibility for bad acts. It is sorrow for the condition of heart which led to the bad acts and experiencing change in heart motive. That's true (laughs) repentance. Judas acknowledged his sinful act. He threw down the money. I betrayed innocent blood. He expressed sorrow for his sinful act, and he didn't want to do that act again. But Judas was not sorry for the selfishness in his character which led him to do it. He was sorry his plan did not work out. He did not want Christ to die. He wanted Christ to use his power to overthrow the Roman yoke and take the throne, and that was what he was sorry for. He wasn't sorry for the selfishness. He was sorry for the behavior. This plan didn't work. When we focus on legal problems and sinful acts merely, we lead people to be like Judas and acknowledge the sinful act, express sorrow for the sinful act, and change in desire to never do that specific act again. But the heart isn't changed because we mislead people into believing sin is behavioral rather than the truth that's characterological, heart-motivated. Then they seek to do the same sin but with slightly modified act so they think they're not doing the same sin. So, Judas won't ever plan to do this again. See, he would plan to do something else that's still just as selfish and just as manipulating and just as conniving, but he would never want to betray Jesus that way again, see? Because he's repented from that. This is what we do.
1: Only because it didn't work.
0: It's only because it didn't work. Kid gets caught smoking marijuana. I'm sorry, I repent. Never want to do that again. Now, how can I smoke next time uh, in a way? Different place. Oh, different place. I, I smoked on school property. That was the problem. Okay. Smoking on school property. I won't smoke on school property anymore. I repented. You see? There's no repentance there. Second paragraph. We can see the importance of repentance by the fact that John the Baptist and Jesus began their ministry preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm going to just ask the question. From what were they to Repent. I've heard this presented many times. It was called them to repent from, repent from sin. Repent from basically doing bad stuff. Is how it's often connot, you know, connotated to me or presented to me. I'm going to suggest to you what they were really called to repent from was false ideas they held about God. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Repent from this imperial dictator, Baal God concept that you guys are worshiping. God is not the God who made this person blind. God is not the God that caused that tower to fall on people. God is not the God who has cursed the lepers with leprosy. They had this view back then that not only if you had physical sickness did you have that burden to deal with, but you also were cursed to God.
1: It's not just back
0: then. It's not just back then. Yeah. I'm I'm suggesting that the call to repentance was primarily to turn around your mind's and heart's attitudes about who God is and see him for who he really is. That's the real repentance. We must turn today from ideas that infect our thinking about God. We can only fulfill our purpose, my view, as a a group of Christians, to lighten the world for Christ's return as we come back to the knowledge of God. This requires we expel the false law concepts with which Rome infected the church and the false atonement models based on the false law concept and the false judgment models and the false imposed punishment and torture models. Do you see how deeply this is woven into or the whole fabric of Christianity? It's not just an atonement model. It's a punishment model. It's a judgment model. It's a law model. The whole thing is corrupt until we present, until we do this then we're taking a distortion of God, false God, Satan's version of God even to the world, and the Holy Spirit, the latter rain, isn't going to empower us to do that. God's waiting for a people who are so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, that they cannot be moved. He's waiting for spirit temples to be cleansed from the distortions about him. And when this happens, then the spirit will fall. It will be like... Uh, Solomon's day of dedication we will be the spirit temple and we will be filled with the brightness of his glory and we will take a message to the world that will lighten the world but we, we won't be that until we get rid of these distortions about God Yes.
1: Down at the end of that page it says that um, God reveals to us his love in order that we may repent and maybe that's why the last message that has to go out to the world is his message of his character of love so that the world can see that and turn around
0: I think so. And until we do this, our message has no power to heal and restore. Instead, like the Jews, we convert people and make them twice the son of hell, as they were before. Why twice the son of hell? Because before we converted them, they didn't know God, and they had that barrier to get over, but now they still don't know God, and they, so they have to still learn who God is, but now they have to unlearn the distorted God concept that we taught them. So they have two barriers to get over now. Twice the son of hell. It'd be better to leave them unconverted than to convert them to a false God concept. They only have one barrier to get over.
1: I have a question here in Romans uh, 3, where it's saying, uh, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, and in my footnote it says, or as the one who would turn aside his wrath, taking away um, through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left his sins beforehand unpunished, He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus.
0: NIV? Yeah. NIV is very forensic. Yes. That's Romans chapter 3, 25, 27, something. Uh,
1: 21 through 26.
0: 21 through 26. Yeah. Um, First off, presenting him as a sacrifice of atonement, the Greek word that's translated as sacrifice of atonement is hilasterion which is the Greek word for the lid to the ark of the covenant. That's an, it's a, it's used as a noun. It's the lid of the ark. So what it in my paraphrase, it's he presented him as the way and means of reconciliation. Jesus was the way and means, the method, the avenue, the conduit that God used to restore humankind back into unity with him. But if you come to the model already with a lens of imperial uh, dictator law view on your on your brain when you're reading the text and translating, you translate it through legal words. Um the words translated justice go back and check the king james you'll find many of those are not translated justice they're translated righteousness and that's because if you do the just thing you're doing the the right thing right just righteous just this Okay, but in English, it has a different connotation because of our legal language. We actually see huge legal overtones to it that really are not in the language. So what it's saying is that God presented Jesus as the way and means of reconciliation or restoration of humankind back to him so that he would be shown as being right when he restores those to rightness with him through Christ Jesus. This is the right way to do things. This is out of a First Selected Messages, page 410 about, about the, the work of John the Baptist. John was called to do a special work. He was to prepare the way of the Lord and make straight his path. The Lord did not send him to the schools of the prophets and the rabbis. He took him away from the assemblies of men to the desert that he might learn of nature and of nature's God. God did not desire him to have the mold of the priests and rulers. Well, why not? Who set up the schools of the prophets? Who, who directed in their, uh, their establishment? Was it not God? Yeah, well, that's interesting, but we shouldn't go there. He was called to do a special work. The Lord gave him his message. He did not go to the priests and rulers and ask if he might proclaim the message. Did you hear that? In fact, remember, they came to him. By whose authority are you doing this? You didn't get our permission. You're not representing the general conference. You don't get a service request. Sorry, guys. You guys know what a service request is? No. When, when one of our... A couple years ago... <laughs> when one of our... When when in one of... Uh, uh, an institution, say a church in a particular part of the world wants a speaker to come, then they'll send a service request to their conference, which then goes to their union, which then goes to their division, which then goes to the division of the place where the speaker is, which goes to their conference, which goes to their union, out to their conference, and you have to be endorsed by the system before you actually get the approved service request and go speak. Okay, John did not get one of these. He did not get a service request. Okay? He did not get endorsed by the system. He didn't wait. Do you know that, that, that four years ago when we ended up coming over here and all the reasons, well, that several of the local establishment suggested that, that we shouldn't teach this message because the church hasn't authorized us to teach this message. John the Baptist didn't submit to their authority. Why? Should Martin Luther have submitted to church authority? Should Jesus Christ have submitted to church authority?
1: No.
0: Do you understand that in our organizational circles right now, there is the idea out there that when the general conference votes something, that everyone should submit to it? Because they've never made a mistake. (laughs) There's this idea. I'm suggesting to you know, Paul says in Romans 14, that every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind. We do not dictate the consciences of other people. Every one of you have your own individuality, your own ability to reason, think, I am not here to do your thinking for you. I don't want to be your mind for you. You have your own. I'm here to challenge you, though, to think it through for yourself. Boy, there's a couple of points I want to make before we close. Let me just jump ahead. Wednesday's lesson speaks of the metaphor of the wedding garment. And it asks, um, why does the, uh, the king come and inspect the people before the wedding uh, to see if they're wearing a wedding garment? And of course, those who don't have the garment on, they're you know put out and so forth. Why did the king do this before the feast? Why does NASA want to ensure every astronaut has a spacesuit and a sun shield before they go out in space? Why? They want to ensure it. Because if they don't, NASA will punish them. No. We can't exist in God's presence without a character like his. We can't exist there. In fact, if we went in his presence without a character like his, it would be torment to us. We would suffer just like going out into space without a spacesuit or a sunshield. It would hurt us. It would injure us. So God wants to be sure we have been renewed to be like him so we can rejoice in his presence because we wouldn't otherwise. The mind, heart, character must be renewed to be in harmony with him. Example, Moses coming off the mountain. His face is radiating this glory. The children of Israel. Just get the reflected glory, and it causes them pain and suffering. They can't stand it. Put a veil over it, hide it. That's awful. The priests can't enter Solomon's temple the day of dedication. Why? Not because the building's burning down. Not because it's too hot in temperature degrees. Because their characters can't stand the brightness of the glory. They can't go in. How about the wicked, according to scripture, are destroyed by the brightness of his coming. This is why he's inspecting and wants us to be ready so when that brightness comes, we shall see him face to face, the scripture says, for we shall be like him. Be like him. That's like him in character. We've been changed and transformed that we resonate with him and we're renewed to be with him. Yes?
1: As you've mentioned before, this um, quarterly has a conflict. Um, The entire page was written very well, except for the question. The, the quotes they had about it being Christ's righteousness, the necessity for Christ's righteousness, and everything else, it was written very well. It was just a question.
0: Yeah. All right, I'm going to close with this. This is a quotation I'm going to give you guys out of Review and Herald, January 5, 1886. It was regarding Thursday's lesson when it says, When in faith we recognize our need, we repent, we confess our sins, and claim Christ's righteousness for ourselves, we become as disciples. Could a person do all of this and still not be a Christ, disciple of Christ? Look at my notes. But here's this is out of um, Review and Herald, January 5, 1886. When we speak of unbelief, we do not mean that a person believes nothing. The mind must rest upon something. And when it does not grasp truth, it lays hold of error. All men in one sense believe, and the effect produced upon the heart and character is according to the things believed. Bible, Remember, we have power of what we believe, but we believe the whole power of right there. It's cool. <laughs> Eve believed the words of Satan, and the belief of that falsehood in regard to God's character changed the condition and character of both herself and her husband. They were changed from good and obedient children to transgressors, and it was only by repentance towards God and faith in the promised Messiah that they could ever hope to regain the lost image of God. Paul had faith before his conversion, but it was not a correct faith. His self-righteousness strengthened his faith that he was doing God's service and rejecting Christ, and and he enjoyed a restful satisfaction. False faith, as well as true faith, will give peacefulness for a time. Paul verily thought that he was doing God's service when he was persecuting the followers of Christ and putting them to death. He was sincere in his belief, but sincerity will not make error into truth, nor truth into error. When the commandment came, Paul said, sin revived and I died. He then received the truth as it is in Jesus and experienced this transforming power upon the soul. A genuine faith in the true God, as Jesus revealed, results in transformation to the believer to be like Jesus in character. Those who have a false faith faith will have religion but not love. They'll have creeds but will not sacrifice self. They'll have worship services but will not have transforming power of worshiping the true character of God. They'll have rituals, but no unity with God. They'll have legal claims, but they will not have a renewed heart. And when Satan appears arguing that sin must be punished, they will say, this is our God. We have waited for him. Mm -hmm. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not like Satan has alleged that you are exactly as Jesus revealed. Father, our minds have been filled through, for many years of, of misunderstanding and distortions about you with, with false ideas, Lord, and we, we pray now that your spirit will come. Let the word, the word of truth, cleanse our minds and hearts. May we come to know you as you truly are, as Jesus revealed. May you, your spirit be poured into the spirit temple of our souls to cleanse and renew and to empower that we can lighten the world, that we will see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.